0: But as we draw near to the end of the book of Acts, we see the the Apostle Paul, who has taken so many journeys around the world to share the gospel, has only one trip left, at least in this story. And we saw back in chapter 23, verse 11, that the Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, you must testify in Rome. So that's Paul's final destination is Rome, which is a fitting conclusion to the book of Acts. But we saw several times he he was in prison, not really in prison, he was in custody in Caesarea awaiting a trial, awaiting like a fourth trial because they kept on being corrupted and there were corrupt officials involved. And the Jews kept on trying to lure him away from Caesarea back to Jerusalem because they were going to ambush him and kill him on the road. Because Satan is trying to stamp out the light of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see that that is still the case because Paul is going to leave under guard, but he is still going to face death. He's going to be afflicted with storms and shipwreck before he makes it to Rome. And as we read through this this story, it's actually a very fun story to read because it gives you all of the nautical terminology and where they went and how the winds were blowing and the strategy they used to keep the ship together. And it's it's fun to read, but You also can see at several points, Paul and the centurion who's in charge of him are going to have interactions with one another. And there's so much we can learn from their little interactions that I I don't know how connected all of these twists and turns are going to be, but there is plenty for us to learn about going through storms and going through trials in our lives through this. And the, the short summary version I can make is, the trip went about as well as the centurion's obedience to the word of the Lord was. When he was listening to Paul, things went okay. When he stopped listening, things got much, much worse. That's the same for us, isn't it? When we're listening to God, things go well. We try to venture out on our own. Now we're in serious trouble. And I think in a season like the one we've been going through with COVID and political unrest and now an election coming up, we need these reminders, don't we? Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a gospel promise. Write it down. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, you're going to have trouble, but I've overcome the world, so take heart. I've given you my peace. Trials have a tendency to dominate our lives, don't we? When we go through a trial, that's the only thing that matters, and we define our lives by the trials we went through. I don't think that's right. I think we should not be giving the storms of life a disproportionate place in forming who we are. It should be Christ forming who we are. And he can use those things, but you know as well as I do that sometimes the storm that we're going through becomes the Lord of our life rather than the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. I want you to observe as we go through this. How calm Paul is going through all this terrible stuff and Paul is at peace because he's got his eyes on Jesus and he's going to endure the storm. He's going to endure the shipwreck. He's not going to be delivered out of it. He's going to be delivered through it. And I think that we've been delivered through some things this year or are being delivered. So there's a great example for us to follow. Big section. So let's get right to it. Chapter 27 verses 1 through 8 to begin. And when it was decided that we, circled that, should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Okay, so you remember Paul has appealed to Caesar. He's had it with these corrupt governors that are not giving him a fair shake. So he exercises his right as a Roman citizen to go to Caesar and have him hear his trial directly. And Festus, the governor, approved that. And he embarks for Rome with Luke, because Luke is the author of this book, and he says there in verse 1, we, we also see from verse 2 that Aristarchus goes with him. Aristarchus was one of those two guys back in the city of Ephesus. Remember when the the idol makers got all riotous and angry and they dragged those two guys into the arena and they started shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Aristarchus was one of those two guys. He comes back at the end of Colossians. He's in the book of Philemon. He did a lot of ministry with Paul, and he's with him on this journey. This is the longest and actually the last of the three we passages in the book of Acts. We saw the first one when Paul went from Troas to Philippi on his second missionary journey in chapter 16. We saw the next one when he's coming home from his third journey when he went from Philippi to Jerusalem. And now Luke is going to be with him from Caesarea to Rome. Luke, the beloved physician. Paul would call him. So Paul's not by himself. He's got some friends with him. And he's put into the custody of a centurion named Julius. And it says he was of the Augustan cohort. Remember a cohort was a thousand soldiers. So this would have been one of the ten centurions that had rank in that cohort. By Augustan, that refers to Caesar. Augustine, you, you hear of Caesar Augustus. It's like saying the imperial cohort. And we know that at the time, there was a a group of soldiers there that were auxiliaries. You maybe have wondered your whole life, how did tiny little Rome conquer the whole world? How did they have an army big enough to do that? Well, what they did is the officers were Roman, and then they would conscript or they would draft local soldiers into their armies. So the Roman soldiers at this time in this area were mostly Syrian. So they were not all Italian. They were working for Rome, so that's why it's called the Imperial, because it's not referring to the city of Rome. They're soldiers drawn from the Empire itself. So their first ship, they're going to get in a ship from Adramidium, and we've got a map to help you get your bearings on some of these things here. Adramidium was up here near Troas. So it's come a long way. It's probably a coast-hugging vessel, not going to go out into the deep water, but it's going to stay by the coast. And they first go north about 65 miles to Sidon, which is the sister city to Tyre. We've heard about them a lot in the Bible. And we see now that Paul has made friends with Julius, with this centurion. And centurions always come off very well in Scripture, don't they? The first Gentile to be saved was a centurion. But he's going to let Paul go ashore, meet with his friends. These are likely other Christians in the city of Sidon. Because remember, Paul is not, he's not under arrest. He, he's, he's, got, he's an appeal. He's not a convict, you know. So they can let him have a little a little freedom here, and he's going to come back. He obviously trusts his character. And then they're going to hug the shore. They're going to go up under the lee, it says, of Cyprus. If you're familiar with how ships and boats work, I'm going to talk like I am, even though I'm really not. The leeward side of something is where you're sheltered from the wind. The windward side would be where the wind is blowing. So that means they're going to come up here to the north of Cyprus to avoid the winds that are blowing this way. And they're going to go up to a place called Myra, which is in Lycia. This would have been about a 15-day journey, although it seems they've been struggling under the winds here, so who knows quite how long it took them to get there. Now, Myra was 500 miles due north of Alexandria in Egypt, and it formed part of this triangle that would deliver the grain and the wheat from Alexandria and Egypt, which was like the breadbasket of the empire. And fittingly enough, they find a ship from Alexandria that they can get on, These are big, large ships. They were sometimes more than 100 feet long. They weighed over 1,000 tons. They're able to handle the big open water of the Mediterranean Sea. So they get out of that little ship from Adramidium, and they get in the big one that's going to take them all the way. Now they get to Canitis, which you can see it right there, to the west of Lycia, which is 130 miles distant, but it says they got there with difficulty. So rather than cutting straight across to Italy, like they normally would have done, they say, we're going to sail under the lee of Crete, which is along the southern coast of Crete. Salmone was the the peninsula at the edge here, and they're going to come down to the south to a place called Fair Havens, near a town called Lassia. So they're sailing, they're making their way, and up to this point, there's been no major roadblock. It's been tough sailing, but they're doing okay. And you can see, as we saw in Sidon, Paul is being treated well. And Julius is continuing that pattern of noble centurions in the Bible. But I want to make this point before we move on and see how all that changes. It is easy to listen to the word of the Lord and honor the name of the Lord when things are going easy in your life. Julius had no problem listening to Paul, letting Paul go ashore for a little while, trusting he'll be back, honoring him and treating him well, we can assume, because there were no No storms yet. The winds weren't exactly at their back, but they were okay. And in the same way, it is far too common for Christians to listen to the Lord, to let the Lord have freedom in their life when things are going well. And the minute things start going poorly, God gets shoved out of the picture because we've got to solve this crisis. Jesus described people like this in Matthew chapter 13. This is of the parable of the sower. You remember this? He said, as for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Maybe you've known people like this. They have what might be an awesome conversion. There's a great experience and everybody's so happy. But then the minute the first crisis hits their life, they're gone and you never see them again. Jesus said that's the rocky soil. Now, I I would never be the one to fault somebody for going to church when things are good, or worshiping when things are good, or praying when things are good. But we need to know that that alone is not an indication of deep spiritual roots. If you're doing all the things you're supposed to when conditions are perfect, that's good. You should be doing those things. But that alone does not indicate that everything is right. Why do we call them trials anyway? Because trials are there to try us or to test our faith. And a trial is going to say, okay, great. Job is serving the Lord, but God has made Job filthy rich. So let's see what happens when we take all that away. Let's see if there's anything left. Now, luckily for Job, there was. But that's what it was, a trial. They were testing the faith of Job. Storms and shipwrecks show us who we really are. You don't get to say, well, you know, it was a crisis. It was a bad time. That, you know, how I acted then is not who I really am. Actually, it's the opposite of that, isn't it? Because when everything was good and everything was perfect and there was nothing at stake, it was easy to follow Jesus. Then the minute things got hard, you dropped it like a bad habit. That shows you how deep the roots of your faith really are. And for some people, a storm is a breaking point. Everything is great in their walk with the Lord, and then someone dies in the family, or sickness comes in, or something goes wrong in the nation wars can do this and it becomes a breaking point for them i followed jesus up until blank happened and you hear the story and you wonder i don't know what that has to do with jesus what why did you walk away but in reality as jesus said in matthew 13 they had no root and the sun scorched it but for other people trials are not breaking points they're turning points like, this was the moment when everything came collapsing down. It was either walk away or keep going. And I chose to keep going. And, man, that's made all the difference. Some of us can rejoice in trials because when our trials come, we see all of a sudden all of this discipline that we've been building up and all of this faith that we've been declaring, it kicks into gear. And all of a sudden, we're able to handle it. That should, that should encourage you. If you're going through the pandemic of 2020 or going through whatever's going on in your family or your situation or your workplace – And when it came, your faith that seemed just came alive all of a sudden, you should rejoice. Because that means that there's roots in your heart. But if you go through something like that, and all of a sudden you just quit, you you might need to take a second look at your faith. Evaluate yourself. What have your trials shown you to be? That's all trials do. Trials don't make things of us. They show us who we really are. This is why Jesus didn't commit himself to the multitudes that were following him. Because he knew. He knew. The second it becomes unpopular, they're gone. And he was right, wasn't he? Paul and Julius have a great relationship going. And he's listening. And good, he should be listening. Good for Julius. But they're about to have their whole world rocked. And immediately Paul is going to get shoved to the side here. Don't do that with the Lord. Don't do that. You should draw closer to the Lord at those times rather than saying, Okay, God, I'll be right back. Let me just go fix this my way. It won't work, as we will see. Let's read at verse 9, and we'll go down to verse 20 now. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called a northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cada, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Cirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Okay. So it says much time has passed back in verse 9. Normally, the, the trip from Caesarea to Rome would have been about a five-week journey. But it's going slowly, and it says the fast has already past and that's the day of atonement as it's referred to in the old testament yom kippur you may have heard of that and depending on what year it was it would have been late september early october we think this was the year 59 a.d which would mean that the day of atonement was on october 5th so they're into october now and there was a phrase that the sailors used to use about the mediterranean sea when you hit mid-november it was mare clausum which means the sea is closed (laughs) Maybe you've been to the beach and they've got one of those signs, the beach is closed. Well, they're not there yet, but they're getting close. And Paul speaks to them and says, guys, we ought to stay here. We ought to stay at Fair Havens. Paul's an old salt at sea. He's been on his share of boats. And I'll tell you something that I learned, I should have known, but I learned during the study. In 2 Corinthians 11.25, where Paul references that I've been shipwrecked and I spent a night and a day adrift at sea, that was written before Acts 27. So Paul's about to go through his second shipwreck. So he's seen this before and he's like, fellas, I, I can see where this is going and I think we ought to stay here. So they're at Fair Havens on the southern shore of Crete and he's saying, let's stay here because if we get out in the water, we're going to get shipwrecked. I've been there before. I don't care to do that again and they're going to try to make it to Phoenix, which is not that far, because that's a better, a better harbor. Phoenix was only 50 miles west, because Fairhaven says it was an exposed harbor. During the wintertime, they'd be in town, but the ship would probably get smashed up by the waves, so they say, let's get to Phoenix instead, because it had two opposite harbors, which are, if the winds move, you can move the boat to the other harbor so that way you're not going to get smashed up. It's half a day's journey, one full day tops. And Paul says, don't do it. And he says, okay, what does the pilot have to say? What does the captain have to say? And they say, oh, we can make it. We can make it easy. All right, well, we're going to go. Well, they get out from from the shore, and it says a northeaster. This is the word urakalon in Greek. It actually is a compound word from euros, which means east in Greek, and then an A Latin word, aculos, which means wind. It was a nautical term that meant these giant, enormous storms that would sweep out of the northeast. And that word for tempestuous there, a tempestuous wind, is "typhonikos." It's where we get the word typhoon from. So think hurricane force wind blowing down. The, The Cretan mountains were thousands of feet up, and the wind would build up, and then it would come swooping down those mountains, and it would smash the boats right off the coast. And they get caught in one of these. So the sails at that time, they weren't made of canvas like the later sails would be. They would be linen. They would be animal skins. So they weren't able to go against the wind. So they just turn themselves loose and get blown by the wind. And they, they can shelter from the wind for a little while, about 23 miles south here, in a little island called Cada, or Clauda, your translation might have it. We're not quite sure exactly what the name was. But they're going to they're gonna stop there for a minute. And they do two things. They bring in the small boat. So this would have been like a lifeboat they had. And they're going to bring that on, because you can imagine getting blown about in the wind, and that thing fills with water. It's not not going to make it easier. And it says that they're going to undergird the ship. This was a practice that I found about that made me never want to sail in one of these boats. They would take the boat out of the water and take ropes and cables and tie the boat together so that the timbers and the spars would hold. They would lash it together with ropes which says to me, you should have listened to Paul. If you have to tie the boat together, you've got a problem. And they, they realize, though, that as they sit there, it's this tiny little island. They're going to get blown off again. And if they try to stay there, they're afraid that they're going to get blown south into what's called the Sirtis. It's a gulf in Libya. Northern Libya It's called the Gulf of Sidra. And there are many sandbars there. It's called a graveyard of ships in the Mediterranean. So you'd get blown by this huge wind, you'd hit a sandbar, and you'd get smashed to pieces. And the tricky thing about that gulf is the sandbars move. Even to this day, they move depending on the wind and the tides. So they're afraid if we stay here and we get caught, we're in in prime position to get blown there, and then we're never getting out. So it says they they throw out a little anchor, something just to give them a little bit of drag so they're not going to go so fast. And they get sent out into the winds again. The next day, they start throwing the cargo over, which this is from Alexandria. This is wheat. This is grain. And then they throw the ship's tackle overboard. All the extra equipment is gone. And it says that they're caught in a dark storm where they can't even see the sun. They can't see the moon. They can't see the stars, which is how they would have navigated then. And it says that all hope of being saved was abandoned. Not a great situation to be in, is it? Hard winter at Fair Havens doesn't sound so bad anymore, does it? Paul warned them, but they didn't listen. The moment the Lord's wisdom went against his own inclinations, Julius found another authority to listen to. Now, I want to mention something here. It does not say that Paul had a revelation from heaven about what was going to happen. That's going to happen in a minute. He says, I perceive that if we keep going... We're going to lose everything. We're even going to lose our lives, which they would not lose their lives. The Lord's going to reassure him of that. This is what I've heard referred to, and I I like this terminology, as a check in your spirit. You ever have that? you you just got something that says, this doesn't feel right. You ever meet somebody? Maybe your son or daughter brought home a, a girl or a guy, and something just didn't seem right. Like, I don't have any explanation. I don't have any reason that I can give you other than this just doesn't seem right. And then everyone around you goes, oh, come on, that's not very logical. You're like, I, I'm just telling you, this doesn't seem right. And then you act on it, and you're like, oh, I'm so glad I listened to that. You've got to listen to these. Now, you don't establish doctrine by these. You, know, you don't abandon what Scripture says by these. But God speaks to his people. And sometimes it's not a, a, a lightning bolt from heaven. Sometimes it's just God whispering in your ear, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, don't do that. Nope, don't do that. Don't go there. Or somebody walks up, and the Lord says, That's bad news. And you think, oh, I shouldn't shouldn't think that about anybody. And the Lord's like, bad news. What is this? This is the wisdom of the Lord at work in your situation. The Bible gives us lots of principles, lots of wisdom. Read through the book of Proverbs. There's a ton of good stuff to live your life by. But sometimes we're not sure which of those principles applies. You ever know that? You're like, I don't know if we ought to step out in faith and trust that God's going to deliver the boat or if we ought to be wise and stay here. God gave Paul just a little check that said, don't go anywhere. Spirit-led perception. It's important. We ought to pay attention to those things because sometimes it's God talking. It's not always. You know, pray it through, like uh, it says in 1 John, test all things, but pay attention. Gentlemen, when your wife has a bad feeling about something you're about to do in your family, just pay attention. (laughs) Ladies, if you've got a plan and it's all scheduled and your husband's like, I just, it just doesn't, feel right to me. It doesn't feel right. Well, I've got a plan. Just pay attention. You've got good friends in your life that you're like, hey, she's pretty great, right? Don't you think she's great? I don't know, man. She doesn't seem like a good fit for you. What are you talking about? She's great. We we get along awesome, and she loves me, and I love her. Something doesn't seem right, but just that little check in your spirit. Listen to that. We believe in a God who speaks to his people. And sometimes he'll yell if he really wants to get your attention, but sometimes God just nudges you and says right instead of left, or left instead of right. Pay attention to that. But instead, Julius chose to listen to the authority. Well, Paul is a prophet and apostle, I guess. This guy's a pilot. This guy's the captain of a boat. He knows what he's talking. Yeah, I know you've been shipwrecked, but that bad experience probably colored the way that you view things So, we're we're just going to try this. We're men, we're brave, we're just going to go for it. We choose to listen to the authority. You know what the danger of that is, though? If you really want to do something, you can find any authority to tell you that it's okay to do that. Do you know who the hardest people are to do counseling with? People who have been in counseling before, people who have been to counselors often many times because they've already been given get out of jail free cards for a lot of things. Trying to talk to some of those teenagers back in that youth group who had been diagnosed with five or six things. I said, you've got to control your temper. Well, I can't. The doctor says I have this disorder. It's like, well, that just shows you don't trust the Lord is what it is. But then you can find an authority to tell you anything you want. If you want to believe some doctrine, you can find some teacher online to tell you that it's okay to believe that. If you want to go this way instead of that way, you can say, well, I found somebody that said it's all right to do that. And it makes things worse. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4, says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears... They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's what I'm talking about. Accumulating teachers to suit their own passions. Finding somebody who's going to agree with you and tell you exactly what you want to hear so that you can go back to your friends and family who are worried about you and tell them they don't know what they're talking about because somebody with letters after their name said I could do it. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I mean, if you choose to ignore what Scripture says because you found an authority on that, you're in serious trouble. You ignore the godly people around you because somebody on TV said something. That's trouble. I'm just going to go my own way. It's amazing to me how many times the excuses that people use to ignore what the Word says, I know where they got it from. I know what book you read. I recognize it because I read that book too. I know what podcast you're listening to because I know what that guy says or that girl says. I know where this is going. This conversation, I know where it's going to end up because you didn't come up with it. You didn't hear from the Lord. You went and found it. And it sounded good, so you put it in your pocket to pull it out whenever you needed it. That's not good. And very often, most of the time, you do that, you make things worse for yourself. Instead of a hard winter at Fair Havens, you're stuck in the middle of nowhere and the boat's being driven by the wind. The older I get, and I'm not old, but the older I get, the more I realize how many of my own troubles and my own trials were at least partially self-inflicted. Isn't that the truth? Let's be honest with ourselves. Trials are unavoidable, but not every trial is unavoidable. This trial they're going through was avoidable. If they had listened to the Lord, if they had listened to God's man, they would have been able to escape that. And I have learned that even if I've got to go through something, I can make it so much worse. I've got to go through this, but my attitude has made it hard for everybody, and now everybody's mad at me in addition to going through all this stuff. I tried to fix it four or five ways, and now instead of just being broke, now I've done some things illegal, and now I've got the authorities after me. God can see all things, and God warns us about what's coming. He does. The Lord warned this church about the pandemic. Ask me about it later. We'll tell you about it. And sometimes we're due for a hard winter. The Lord says, you've got to get to Rome, and along the way you're going to have to stop here at Crete, and that ship's going to be battered, and you might have to find a new one. But if we strike out on our own and say, it's okay, I can avoid it, you're going to end up being driven by the wind and stuck in the dark. And do you notice here, they didn't want to go far. They didn't want to completely abandon it. We're still going to stay. We're just gonna stay over here instead of over here. Just a little change. Just a little bit of difference. Just a little bit of my own ideas, my own little compromises. Very rarely are we just wanna defy God and do our own thing. It's like, just just a little. No one will notice, it's not a big deal. I'm still technically obeying the commandments of God. I'm just going to obey them tomorrow. But you don't know that tomorrow there's a Northeaster coming It's gonna blow you way off course. Julius could have avoided everything he lost and the despair and the fear that he faced if he had listened to the Lord early on rather than just hearing what he wanted to hear. This is a great example, by the way, and we're not going to talk anymore about it, but people want to insist that we listen to the experts on everything. Listen to the experts. You're not an expert. You don't know. Listen to the experts. Well, they listened to the experts, and they almost got killed for it. Got a real problem with worshiping experts, don't we? should be listening to the Lord instead. So listen, guys, if you are in a situation where you have made it worse, we're all going through the same 2020, but you've made it worse. It's worse now because of something you did or something you said or somewhere you went. You've got to face that. Don't just pity yourself. You've got to face that. Say, this was me. I did this. Lord, I'm very sorry. Please help. God's not going to leave you to your own devices. Oh, well, fine. You don't want me. I'm not going to help you anymore. That's not what God does. But you've got to be willing to acknowledge that I'm going to stop helping, Lord. You ever have your kids try to help you cook or help you mow the lawn or help you paint? I'm helping. Oh, please stop. Please stop helping. Julius, please stop helping. Listen to the Lord. Listen to Paul. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Paul's not above an apostolic, I told you so. You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Sometimes that's all you can do, isn't it? Let down the anchor and pray for daytime. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Well, Paul speaks up. Hey, guys, remember me? A few weeks ago, I said, don't leave Fair Havens," And now we're in the middle of the storm. But don't worry, we're going to get through it because you're with me. And the Lord is going to deliver me to Rome, and I've prayed for you, and God has granted me your lives. Paul's like the anti-Jonah, isn't he? Like, they're going to survive the storm because Paul's on the boat. Jonah's problem was, you got to get him off the boat, or you're going, to, you're going to suffer the same fate he's going to suffer. They both went through storms. That'll preach on its own, won't it? It says they're being driven across the Adriatic Sea. Now, normally, the way modern people demarcate it, that, the Adriatic Sea is way up here between Italy and Macedonia. That extended much farther back then, so... It says the Sea of Adria that included the Ionian Sea and all this territory down here. Some people like to think Luke didn't know what he was talking about, but they just don't know their history. So, And they realize that they're getting closer to land because they're taking soundings, which means they're checking the depth of the water, and it starts out with 120 feet and then 90 feet. So it's, it's getting close to the shore quickly, and so they're going to put the anchors down to stop the ship from running aground. And now it says 20 and 15 fathoms. A fathom was about six feet, maybe a little bit more. It was about the length of a man extending his arms from fingertip to fingertip. So some of the Bibles just put in feet there, and that's helpful for me. But So it's gone from 120 feet to 90 feet. But look what the sailors try to do. They put people at anchor in the middle of the Adriatic Sea, and they say, now we're going to go drop some from the bow. We'll all have to hop into the to the little boat and get down there but Paul either gets a word from the Lord or he's just smart enough to figure it out but these guys are trying to leave the sailors are going to leave the non-sailors on board Say so we can get away in this little boat and they're just slowing us down so Paul calls him out and Julius cuts the little boat away that's what's called being totally committed but Paul has a word from the Lord for everybody isn't it great when the word of God cuts through the storm you can't see anything and it's dark and you can't hear anything except the, the waves crashing against the boat. And then God's word just cuts through and speaks to you. And you're reminded, oh yeah, that's right. I do serve a Lord who delivers. And a lot of times, like Paul here, when the Lord begins to speak in the middle of a trial, he starts with a reprimand. You should have listened to me. Do you get it now? You ever have the Lord say it to you? Do you get it now that you're supposed to trust me now? Do you believe me now? The next time I say, don't go, will you trust me? The next time I say, watch out for that guy, will you trust me? But he doesn't stay there. He gets quickly to the encouragement here. Paul says, I've got to go to Rome. I've got to talk to Caesar. We all know that God brings us through trials, but let's ask a question. Why? Why does God bring us through trials? You ever thought about that? It's good to know. Because... We can start to despair. God won't bring me through. But if you know why God does this, it'll be encouraging for you. God brings you through because he's got work for you to do. Paul had a job to do. Paul had a mission. He was going to go and testify before Caesar Nero. He also had a couple more books of the Bible to write. God has work for you to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you know this one. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a will and a plan for your life. And what Satan tries to do is throw trials at you to disrupt that plan. But if God is still working with you, working through you, you're going to get through it. So if we're willing to submit to the Lord in the middle of our trials, even our self-inflicted trials, he'll begin to lead us back to what he's called us to do. It's been said the safest place to be is in the will of God. A lot of people want to get snarky about that. Like, oh yeah, well, when I was in the will of God, I went through trials. And when Daniel was in the will of God, he got thrown into the lion's den. Well, okay, if you're worried about your stuff, if you're worried about your status in life, if you're worried about what people think of you, okay, great, that might not be a safe place to be. But as far as you and your eternal soul are concerned, when you're doing what God's called you to do, there's no safer place to be. So the the lesson there is don't get off of what God's called you to do. Don't do your own thing because there's no divine protection promised for that. The Lord wanted me to do this. Instead, I chose to go and do that. You lose all of that. That's never what God planned for you anyway. What's required at this point when the Lord comes in and says, hey, don't don't forget, I've got something for you to do. There is that family member that only listens to you when you talk about the gospel. You've got that workplace where nobody has heard that Jesus is Lord. You've got people around you that you are encouraging, that I need you around for. You've got to then be obedient. Julius cut the boat loose. He cut the only way of escape loose. We're committed. We're trusting Paul now. We're putting ourselves in God's hands. Very often there are things that we've got to cut away in order to be obedient to the Lord. If you've taken something else with you along the way, it's time to cut it loose. I'm so afraid of all the things I'm going to lose through this trial. What are you losing? Is it stuff? Is it experiences? Is it status? That's not the kind of thing that God cares to preserve for you. He's got a job for you to do. He's told you to have a light hold on things so that it's no big deal to lose them. Do you think Paul was worried about his, his reputation back home at this point? Do you think Paul was worried about all his stuff on this boat? We didn't even know that Paul had any stuff. Exactly, because God could use him that way. He had nothing to lose in the best way. Most folks want their way out of trials. Lord, deliver me out of this. But they refuse to consider any deliverance that requires them to change. Lord, let me get back to exactly the way things were. Well, no, the way things were is what got you into this mess. Lord, please just restore that job that I had, Lord. I need it back. Well, when you were at that job, you were lying and you were full of pride and you were full of greed. So why would God give that back to you? I thought the Lord said he'd restore what the locust has eaten. Yeah, well, he's not going to give you junk food. He's not going to give you things that are bad for you. He's a good father. Sometimes good fathers have to take things away from their children because it's better for them. When Micah was a little kid, used to sit on my mother's lap, his grandmother, and she'd have her phone and show him little videos and stuff. She loved it, because he would sit really still, and she could hold him and just hold her grandson. But then, dad comes in and says, OK, time to go. And the phone gets taken away, and man, oh, man, a little Wolverine, that child, starts screaming. Ah, no, 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 give it back. So dad made a rule. No more phone for that boy. Well, it's, it's fine. I just want to hold him. I'm sorry, no. Because when I let him have that, he turns evil. (laughs) And the same way in your life, when God lets you have certain things and you get wicked, God's going to take it from you. And you'll scream and cry and kick your feet and bang your head against the floor. And God's like, no, I know what's good for you. So get rid of it. The Lord wants you ready to be used at a moment's notice. The Lord gives encouragement, and we're about to talk about that. But in the trials, God also gives instruction. God will come in and say, you're going to get right back in this same old mess if you don't knock that off. Can you think of things in your life that caused the problem and the cause has not been fixed and you want the effect fixed? But I thought God was on my team. He is, but you're messing it up. You are not walking in obedience with the Lord. You are at dissonance with God's will. You've got to be prepared. And sometimes when you've been really foolish, you've got to be prepared for your whole ship of life to run aground on some island somewhere. And that might be your deliverance, even though it might not feel like it at the time. Let's get going. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. That's my life verse right there. For it it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So who's really captaining this boat right now? (laughs) It's Paul, isn't it? And he urges these men, 276 men, to eat because it's been 14 days. And it's not that they hadn't eaten anything. It's that they had not had a proper meal because they've been fighting off this storm. He says, God has told us we're going to survive, so you might as well eat. You might as well take comfort. And you see how he he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. It reminds us of Jesus who did that when he was feeding the 5,000, remember? And when he was on the road to Emmaus and he went in to eat dinner with these guys and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And so you can see how they're trying to draw the parallel between Paul and Jesus here. Very unlikely this is a communion meal. I've heard that put out there because it only mentions the bread and also because most of these folks are not Christians. But there is a picture of Christ here offering joy and courage in the middle of a terrible storm. They eat and they throw out the rest of it. They get rid of the wheat because they figure, we've got to run aground. We might as well lighten this ship so that we can get as far inland as possible so that we don't have to drown in the water. But they've lost everything at this point. All that's left is this this giant boat. I love Paul's attitude here. It's almost strange to think. They're in the middle of this giant storm. They've, They've dropped anchor. They're getting battered by the waves. They can't see the sun, haven't seen the sun for two weeks. And Paul says, all right, guys, dinner's ready. Sit down, have some food. God already told us we're going to get through it. Let's just relax. We'll pray and we'll, we'll be encouraged. Paul is, is demonstrating a, a Christian attitude in the middle of his trials. Now, when it comes to Christians in trials, you've really got two kinds of people. You've got Tiggers and you've got Eeyores. You know who Tigger is. Tigger is bouncy all the time. Everything is great. Nothing is sad. And it drives everybody else crazy. There are Christian Tiggers. There are Christians who refuse to even acknowledge the storm. No, 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 there's no storm. If I admit there's a storm, then the storm's going to happen, like we have that kind of power or something like that. But it's, everything is great, and you should never feel bad, and you should never be sad, and you should, you should never feel the pain of something, and thank God for all the bad things that happened to you. And it, it really can mess with people's faith in that case. But I think that's not most of our problem. Most of us have a problem with being Eeyore Christians, where nothing can ever be going well enough. We're always depressed. We're always gloomy. We've always got something bad to say. Even when things start to look up, it's like, yeah, well, it's probably going to go back down again tomorrow. The kind of person that, hey, the cases of COVID are going down. Yeah, they're probably going to spike again. I think in reaction to Tigger Christians, we've swung so far in the other direction that it's like, do we even believe that God is gonna deliver us or not? We can be that way. And we think it's spiritual. This is the weird thing. We think it's more spiritual to be downcast than it is to be joyful. This is slow song Christianity. Do you know what I mean by that? Everybody loves the slow songs. And as a worship leader, let me tell you: if you want to get a reaction out of an audience, you go, you play shout to the Lord, you play Revelation song, you play Ocean, something really slow and melodic and Nobody's picking their phones up during those songs. But you play the fast ones, the exciting, exuberant ones, and people will kind of look around, and now's a good time to go to the bathroom. And It's it's just a funny little thing that we do where we think the slow songs are more spiritual than the faster ones. But let's apply that broader. Slow song Christians think it's more spiritual to be downcast and weeping and on your face and bawling before the Lord than it is to be rejoicing and excited and smiling. We walk into church with a smile on our face. Good morning, brother. God bless you. How are you doing? And we think, don't you know there are people starving in Africa? How dare you smile? <laughs> don't you know that you're a sinner? Well, I'm not a sinner anymore. I've been saved by grace. It's just unseemly to be that happy all the time. <laughs> why do we do that? I, I, don't, I really don't know why we do that. We've got to stop. Can we just commit that, that here we're going to stop that? We're, we're supposed to weep with those who weep. We're all supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. We use that verse to beat happy people over the head to be more sad. When it also could apply to tell sad people, buck up and be happy with the people who are happy. I lost my job. Well, he got a promotion. Be happy for him. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Paul is in the middle of a storm in the middle of the ocean. And he says, hey, fellas, what's for dinner? Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Not so that you may white-knuckle it until the rapture. You may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. If you're going to let tribulations wreck your joy, you're in some serious trouble because tribulation's coming. How many times did Jesus say, take heart, be of good courage, fear not, rejoice, Paul and Philippians, remember? Rejoice in the Lord how often? And in case you missed it, Rejoice. If we truly believe that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, that he has conquered sin and that you no longer bear your sin, that he's returning soon and he's going to set all things right, shouldn't we have great joy at all times? Shouldn't that overrule everything else in your life? Some of us, though, it's like we take every opportunity to be sad. If I have half a chance to be upset, I'm going to be upset. I remember people like this, especially back in high school when everybody is just a tad more emotional than usual. <laughs> there are some people, as if they, if they had half a chance to be upset about something, they were. Always that one couple that were always fighting. If she had a chance to be upset and weeping, she would be. If he had half a chance to yell, he would. Usually we grow out of that to some degree, but it's true. Or if we have half a chance to be offended at something, we get offended. If we have half a chance to be angry at somebody online, we get angry. Why do we do that? That's no way to live your life. That's miserable. Well, I can't control the way I feel. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You know how I know? How many times have you been happy, gotten on Facebook, and got off sad? You just controlled your feelings. So use that, but go the opposite direction. Discipline yourself. We're on the boat, too. We're in the same boat as the people in the world. And if they're looking over here in the middle of 2020 and saying, this is the worst year I've ever seen, what are those Christians up to? And we're over here moaning and groaning and the same old thing. Like, God, oh, they must not have anything different than you or me. Well, I'm just trying to be a realist. Realistically, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And no trial or temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. That's realistic realistically the Lord said rejoice always Peter said we have inexpressible joy Romans 8 18 says your trials are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to come in Christ Jesus you just don't know what I'm going through Paul's like don't you dare compare now with then don't do that don't elevate trials so much in your life you know what some of you are going to be offended by this and some of you are going to be liberated by this your trials are not that big a deal Sometimes we need to hear that because we're, we're so afraid that we're going to break somebody's heart or that we're going to blame the victim or whatever that we never just get around to saying, you know what, cheer up. I had a friend named R.J. Geronimo. He one of my best friends that I've ever had. He was on the worship team with me. This guy w- was diabetic. He lost both of his kidneys and has been on dialysis every night. For years. But if you don't know what dialysis is, they process all of your blood through a machine and process it back into your body. His hand got messed up, so where his fingers didn't work. He could only work a night shift at his job because that's where his health insurance came from. And he would still show up to church every single time, singing and praising and laughing and giving glory to God. So when all that was going on, it's, it's gotten better some since then. But when all that was going on, and people wanted to come and and give excuses about what they're going through. It's like, have you seen what this guy's going through? And he's full of joy. Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross, but he rose from the dead. So we're going through things. where We might feel like we're, we're being nailed to the cross in a way, but there's a resurrection coming. We've got to remember that. If Paul can be on this boat and break bread, as he's seasick and everything else, and say, let's have a meal together, waiting for the dawn so they know which way they can aim the ship to run it aground. It's time for us to let joy control our lives again. And for no other reason, isn't the world so full of despair right now? Everybody's depressed, everybody's anxious, everybody's stressed. Why do we want to be so secretive about our own hope and our own joy? Turn it loose, let people see it. You might say, well, they'll laugh at me. It'll be embarrassing. No, it won't. Everybody's out there taking pills. Everybody's out there trying weird spiritual practices. Everybody's out there trying religions and and exercising and thinking it's going to fix whatever. You just tell them Jesus Christ died for your sins and he loves you so much and he's going to come back for us someday. People are willing to listen. Maybe it's because we ourselves do not have enough faith. Verse 39, when it was day... They did not recognize the land. That's reassuring. But they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach, but striking a reef. They can't catch a break, can they? They ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape, but the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So they've cut everything loose. The anchors, they cut the rigging down, they have one sail. It's basically a giant canoe now. They see a beach and the sailors just aim for the beach. And hope that we get there. But they don't even get there. They strike a reef first. And the waves begin to smash the ship to pieces. So there's the beach. They can see it. But they're stuck on a reef. And the back of the ship is being smashed by these waves. And it's starting to break into pieces. And the soldiers, you know, remember this from Philippi, that they would be held responsible for any prisoners they lost. So they're going to kill them. But Julius saves Paul there. And he orders them to abandon ship. They start ripping the ship apart to get the planks to float to the beach. And we're going to find out from the next chapter. This is the island of Malta. And traditionally, St. Paul's Bay, as it's called, was on the northeastern coast of Malta. So they've been blown quite far off course, haven't they? Not what they intended to do. In fact, it's going to take them seven months rather than five weeks to get to Rome. God did not deliver them out of this trial. He delivered them through this trial. Whatever he does for us, he deserves equal praise and equal gratitude. But they lost everything. They lost the boat. They lost the cargo. Anything else they had brought with them. But Paul still had everything that he needed to fulfill his mission in Rome. And that's all that really mattered. Now, if God's going to deliver us through something, if we were to then make it to the beach and then cry on the beach and say, God, why didn't you help me? I lost everything. Where were you during all this? God's like, I just saved your life. You lost your stuff. Don't worry about your stuff. That's why it says in Hebrews 12.1, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Be prepared to endure. It's a race. Races are hard. Shipwrecks are not fun storms happen they're serious we've got to be prepared to endure but let me tell you this when you go through a trial and we're all more or less going through one together you have an opportunity to lose the things that have been hindering you up to that point some of us need to just let the boat break up in 2020 you need to let the cargo go you need to cut the anchors loose you need to start ripping up planks of the ship so that you can float to shore I think in this present season, where the church has been dealing with all kinds of stuff, and so has everybody else, we have a remarkable opportunity to let go of some of the stupid stuff that we care about so much. When I get mad, things that kill my joy, they're very rarely significant things. Have you noticed that? It's very rarely something that is worth dying for. My dad used to say to me, is that really the hill you want to die on? Some stuff that we just we care so much about, but they're minor issues that we allow to blossom. The church can be reminded during this time, if we will permit it, that it's about Jesus Christ, His gospel, His joy, His peace. And just get rid of all that extra stuff. Because we've seen certain churches and certain groups that look so foolish with all the extra stuff they're hanging on to, all the ships being busted up. Hey, w- what if everything falls to pieces? What if the virus comes back and the whole nation is just devastated? And what if some political party gets elected that's going to tear apart everything that we've lived under? What if the whole nation burns down? What happens then? What if the whole boat breaks up? The church will still be here. We're still going to be doing this. Will it look differently? Yeah, probably. But you've got to keep that in mind that the boat is not our priority. The grain on the ship under the deck is not our priority. The tackle is not our priority. The gospel is our priority. And if we have nothing left but ourselves, if we're sleeping in those trees over there, we're rolling up in a jacket that we found in somebody's yard, and then that's all we've got left, that's enough. That is enough. We don't need all this extra stuff. And if the thought of that just causes you to panic, you need to let the Lord cut some of that stuff loose in your life because it might be an anchor that is keeping you stuck. There's the beach, but you run aground because you can't let go of your stuff. Today, people are being beaten down by the waves. We can be the ones that bring them to the shore. To set an example by our joy and our peace, through our loss even. We might lose stuff. Seems like we're coming out of it a little bit. I sure hope we are. But I hope we've at least looked face-to-face at what our real attitude is during crisis like this. Paul shone like a star in the heaven, as the Word says, during this time. So whether your trials are self-inflicted or not, you need to seek the Lord and heed His Word and trust that He's going to bring it through, even if it's through loss. You might lose some things, things that are dear to you. But we're here to do the Lord's work. We're not here to have things. We have no business being pessimistic, grumpy people. The Word tells us that we rejoice with inexpressible joy. We ought to be an example of what it's like to walk through a trial. That's how you do it right over there. And there are some of y'all in this room that I've even told other people, watch how they're doing it because they're doing great. That's how you walk through a trial. Peace and joy are the inheritance that we have. And God's only ever going to take away the things that are unnecessary for our mission. Don't become so attached to stuff that Satan can tie you down with it. Let the Lord break those chains. and the chains of sin too, the things that cause the trials and the things that just make them harder. This year can either be one of, of shuddering memory for us where we' just like, I don't even want to think about that it was too hard, it was too bad. or it can be one where we give praise and thanks for what God did, not only through us, but in us. That's the year that God finally broke the hold of money on my life. because so I had to stare losing it all of it in the face, and God reminded me I didn't need it. So now, I don't have to worry about that anymore. It can be, I finally learned that my life is the Lord's and he can do whatever he wants with it. I finally learned that the people in my life that I'm supposed to take care of, ultimately it's God's responsibility and he's going to take care of them, not me. I learned that life and death are in the hands of God, so I don't fear death anymore. This could be what we learn through this. Because Jesus said in John 16, one more time today, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. Paul made it through the shipwrecks. He made it through the storms. And we're going to face these things in smaller or greater measure throughout our lives. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. And don't hold on to anything that's going to drag you down in the waves. Just let go. Let go. Cling to Jesus and the hope of your salvation.